passage we're going to look at, we're going to work our way through Isaiah 55. I would just say this. Sometimes pastors preach a message and then they close with an invitation. The nature of this chapter is the entire chapter is an invitation. And it actually starts with a call or an invitation. So a little bit backwards, invitations at the beginning. And here's how it starts. Look at verse 1. It says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. So as you read that, I, as, and as I listen to myself read that, I realize I'm not off to a really great start because I've already butchered the first verse. That, that's not ex- at all what that verse sounded like when it was originally proclaimed by the prophet Isaiah. There was a little bit more urgency attached to that. So I'm going to need some help. Oh, man, you're sitting right in the middle. Why don't you come on up front for a second? Um, I don't know if you moved down when he called you to move closer to the front, but, man, you're, you're in the sermon now. This didn't work out really well for you. So, so what I would say is there's a little bit more desperation to the call than just come, everyone who thirsts comes to the water. So I, I'm going to give you a line, okay? Can you remember one line? Okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to go, we're gonna, I'm going to need you to call to the people, but here's all you have to say. Oh, everyone who thirsts come to the waters. Okay, you got that? Yep. Okay, but you got but you got to kind of picture yourself. You got to visualize here for a minute. Okay. Uh, it, oh, everyone who thirsts comes to the water. That's your whole thing. Sure. And I'm adding O oh, because there's actually an urgency. My wife, uh, I'm teaching out of the ESV. She likes the New American Standard Bible. That translation starts with the word ho, everyone who thirsts, but we don't really use that word anymore. So we're just going to flip it around. We're going to call it O. Oh. Okay, I think that just works better. Would you agree? So so we're going to go Oh, everyone who thirsts comes to the water. But here's what you got to visualize. You've been leading this group of people through a wilderness and they're thirsty and you haven't had water for a couple days so your tongue is kind of sticking to the side of your mouth it's kind of one of those moments right and everybody's getting desperate because they know they can't go much longer without water and you found a water source and so they're scurrying around they're looking for the water all over the place you found the water source and then you've got to deliver this line how would you say this line oh everyone who thirsts come to the water Deliver the line like you would if this was a group of people in desperate need of water. Can you do that? Yeah. Okay, hit it. Okay. Seriously, he gets applause for that. Um, <laughs> did, did I tell you you could like go grab people out of the crowd? Like, like, like you were kind of going a little. Okay, I'm gonna turn my mic up. Okay, great. How do you do? Okay, so great. Thank you, man. So, so that's how this chapter starts. Like, like the, the prophet Isaiah, he's calling out. It's not just like, oh, come to the, call anyone who thirsts, come to the water. It's a little bit more urgent of an invitation than that right at the beginning. And uh, I don't know, uh, we're just going to go through this verse by verse. Let me just do this. Come, everyone who thirsts. I would just argue that everyone thirsts. Would you agree? And uh, one of the things that we all hold in common Um, We're told in Ecclesiastes that God has placed eternity in our hearts. And we have this inner longing, this this desire that we have. It's hardwired into each of us to be connected to something greater than ourselves. 
doesn't matter if you're here in Rochester, if you're back in Spring Lake or, or where you live or who you are, I believe that there is this eternal longing that God has placed in our soul. And the call of this verse is, hey, come to the waters. He who has no money, come by and eat. Come by wine without milk, uh, without money and without price. That kind of sounds like too good to be true, right? Because sometimes we, we hear an offer and we've been conditioned to believe that when somebody gives us this um, offer and it sounds too good to be true, we're, we're so conditioned by today's advertising that it's like, oh, we don't believe that's true. Like, like do you guys ever get calls from like telemarketers? And uh, so I'll, I'll be at home and I'll get this call from a telemarketer and they'll be like, hey, congratulations. You've just won five days, four nights, all expenses paid to Orlando. Do you guys get these calls up here? Nobody ever offers Rochester as a destination, do they? they? Yeah, they don't offer Spring Lake, Michigan, but it'd be like, hey, five days, four nights in Orlando, and immediately, doesn't your mind go, there's a catch to this? Isn't that exactly where your mind goes? And I don't want to talk to this person, but I don't want to be rude and hang up, so what, I've, what I tend to do is this. I'm like, oh man, I don't want to go to Orlando. My mother-in-law lives there. And that's just a disaster because I'm going to have to spend time with her. And if I go spend time with her, then my parents are going to be upset. And my sister-in-law lives on there. She's a complete. If you can get them to hang up on you, you win. That's just kind of how I view it. So, so if you dump your problems on the telemarketer, you get them to hang up. That's a good moment. So, so, but we're used to advertising and we're always offered something greater than what's actually delivered. And can I tell you something? We've got a God who always delivers beyond what he promises. And what that means for us this morning is, is, um, Maybe you're like, hey, hey, I, I don't know if I can afford this. Well, it's come without money. Well, well, there's some things in my past, and, and if you knew my heart, there's some things that might disqualify me from what's being offered here. Let me encourage you. The invitation is wide open, and it's not dependent in any way on what we bring. It's solely dependent on the character of the one who's offering. So the call is in verse 1. Look at verse 2. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Boy, if there's, there's one verse that I could pick in all of Scripture that describes our culture, it might be that verse. Spending our money on that which does not satisfy. Laboring, working hard for things that cannot fill the eternal longing in our soul. I'm scared that we've fallen for mirage. I was talking to some of the men yesterday in one of the breakouts at the marriage conference, and I mentioned the fact that a couple years ago, a gentleman by the name of William Provine, he passed away, but he was a professor at uh, Cornell University, and what he was known for is he, he kind of coined the five inescapable conclusions of Darwinism or evolution, the five inescapable conclusions. And his point was, if what you believe about how we got here has philosophical implications on how you live and what the meaning of life is, and here are the five implications that he came up with. If you believe in evolution, you believe in Darwinism, uh, first of all, you believe there's no God. Secondly, there's no life after death. Thirdly, there's no foundation for morality. We get to decide what is right and what is wrong. The fourth thing is, if there's no God, if there's no life after death, and there's no absolute right or wrong, the fourth conclusion is life is meaningless. And then he came up with a fifth one. It caught me off guard a little bit, but his argument was this. Um, there's no free will. You are solely a product of what you have evolved out of. So if you take his conclusions, there's no God, there's no absolute right and wrong, there's no meaning in life, you have no free will, there's no life after death. Think, think, think about where that leaves a culture. Like, like, if, like if you believe that, if that's what you've been taught in schools, if that's what you have embraced um, as a belief system, well, well, what kind of culture would, would be created 
by that set of beliefs. Can you imagine what that culture might look like? As you drive around your community, do you sometimes get a glimpse of that? And, and, and so this emptiness, this invitation that we have at the start of Isaiah 55 is contrasted by many pursuits and many belief systems that don't satisfy the eternal longing of our soul. I believe if you believe there's no God, no life after death, no morality, that life is meaningless and no free will, that leads to a pretty dark place. And I believe a culture that has embraced that as a belief system, they're going to look to fill that eternal longing in their soul in several different places. They, they might look to medicate the emptiness, be that um, illegal drugs, be that alcohol, be that subscription drugs. It doesn't matter, but they're going to be looking to fill that emptiness. It's interesting. Um, I'm not against prescription drugs. Don't hear me to say that. But I do believe we're one of the most over-medicated cultures in the history of the world. And sometimes we are given prescriptions that deal with symptoms, but they don't get to the root cause. So to give you an example, like when I go to the doctor in my hometown of Spring Lake, I live in a small town, so when I go to my doctor, it's a little weird because he was also my RA in college. <laughs> and um, I'm just going to say, when you get over 50, that creates some really awkward uh, moments with this man, but we won't go there, okay? Um, but when I go into the doctor's office, as I'm waiting for him to come in, a nurse will come in, she gives me a yellow sheet of paper every time I visit and has four or five questions. Um, have you been experiencing mood swings? Have you been volatile? I always answer that. I'm like, ask my wife. And um, th then it's like, are, are, are you depressed? Um, are you suicidal? I always cross out suicidal. I write homicidal because that really gets their attention. And um, um, so, my, so the doctor says, he's like, hey, quit messing with our forms. You're going to get us in trouble. I'm like, why are you asking me these questions? He says, well, depending on how you answer this, we're going to potentially be able to give you a prescription that helps. And I'm not against people getting help through medication. All I'm saying is I think sometimes we're filling the void with a lot of other things and there's a spiritual root to the way that we feel. So sometimes it's substances, sometimes it's relationships. You know, I'm here teaching a marriage conference and we're talking about working on marriage and the relationship between a husband and a wife. Husbands, if you put on your wife the weight of that eternal longing in your soul and you expect her to be the person that's going to satisfy that, you will place on her a weight that will crush her because she wasn't designed to satisfy the eternal longing of your soul. Women, if, if you're newly married or you're dating some guy that you believe is Prince Charming or Mr. Right, um, newsflash, reality is going to jump up and what you're going to find is as much as you adore that man he is not going to satisfy the eternal longing in your soul stayed at a um, hotel last night and it was kind of an interesting hotel it has an indoor water park and there's some sort of uh, wrestling tournament in town this weekend so um, saturday night um, there's kids everywhere they're just running the hallways. The parents are there. They've taken their kids there for the weekend. I did this with our kids. We have six kids to soccer tournaments and coaching and around the state. Uh, you ever see kids um, who are bearing the weight of all of their parents' expectations placed on them? Listen, kids are a great thing, but you can crush your kids by trying to live through them and believing that they're going to be the thing that satisfies and provides this lasting joy. So sometimes we look at substances, sometimes we look at relationships. Um, some believe that wealth, like if we, just, if we just had more stuff, like that would solve the problem. 
And I remember I uh, graduated from college in 1986. I went to work for a real estate firm. And one of my first jobs working for this real estate firm in the Chicagoland area was my boss was working on a new concept that had started out, I believe, in the East Coast where they were putting in these storage facilities. Do you guys, do you guys have those here in Rochester? And I remember I'm working on this storage facility project for this guy. And I'm like, hey, you just got to help me for a second. I'm a little lost. So, so we're going to build not just garages without houses, right? And, and, and people are going to take their stuff and they're going to pay us to store it at a place where they don't live. Like, why wouldn't they just put it in their own garage? And he's like, well, their garage is already full with a bunch of stuff, so they need more space for more stuff. And sometimes they're going to rent two or three of these things. And, and you watch how this phenomena has crossed the country, and now we got these goofy t TV shows with treasure hunters going into storage bins that people forgot that they had. you know what I'm talking about? And so this idea that more will satisfy, it's interesting, this isn't new to our culture, this is an age-old problem. I'm taking you back into Ecclesiastes 2 just really quick. Solomon says this, he said, I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I ex had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. If there's anything that the history of our country has taught us is that stuff won't satisfy the eternal longing of our soul. Listen to the words of some of the great industrialists of our country. John D. Rockefeller said this. He said, I have, many, have made many millions, but they have brought me no happiness. I would barter them all for the days that I sat on an office stool in Cleveland and counted myself rich on $3 a week. Now, I'm not, I didn't want to put the pictures of the old guys. I thought it was just more cool to look at, like, their homes. So W.H. Vanderbilt was next. He said this. He said, the care of $200 million is too great a load for any brain or back to bear. It is enough to kill anyone. I have no pleasure in it. John Astor, that's a name you might not be so familiar with, but coming from Chicago, if, if, if you make it in Chicago and you live on the north side of the city on the Gold Coast, there's a road there called Astor Boulevard. Like, that's the address in Chicago. John Astor said, I'm the most miserable man on earth. Henry Ford, more from my neck of the woods in Michigan, he says, work is the only pleasure. It is only work that keeps me alive and makes life worth living. I was happier working as a mechanic. Success, ambition, fame. I, I look at your community. Your community um, is a little bit different than us in that it's so populated with, with young professionals and doctors and people in the medical facility. And, and many of you, rightfully so, are ambitious and aggressive and working hard and chasing um, your dreams and your goals. All of that is good. But I would just tell you this. You can get as high as you want on your professional ladder. It's not going to bring you the lasting joy that is part of the invitation of Isaiah 55. My, my father-in-law, my wife and I got married in 1983, and by 1989, he had sold a couple companies, and, and Forbes listed him as one of the 400 richest men in our country. Like I've, like, I've seen this up close. More stuff doesn't satisfy. And as I pastor and I sit in rooms uh, with people, I usually find people in two different categories. There are some that believe if they achieve something, 
Like, like maybe they get married, or I don't know what's on the top of their mountain, but maybe at the top of the mountain is marriage. They find the right person, or it's children, having children, or maybe it's getting the children out of the house. Like maybe that's their thing. Or, or, or maybe it's if I could just get from junior vice president to senior vice president at the bank and make a little bit more money, that's what would make me happy. And they spend their entire lives scaling a mountain, believing that when they get to the top, They'll satisfy this longing in their soul. And to, and to me, that's tragic. But I gotta tell you, I've seen something even more tragic, that the guy that God blesses and allows to get to the top of the mountain and achieve the things that he thought would make him happy, but he's still not happy. Like, like, like that's a guy, um, that's a guy who uh, is struggling and uh, understands that only God can satisfy. It's interesting. It seems like the younger you achieve, which you believe will make you happy, sometimes the more miserable you are. This interview's a little bit dated, but you guys would know the name Shia LaBeouf. Four or five years ago, he gave an interview to Vanity Fair, and he, this is what he said. I found it interesting. He said, sometimes I feel like I'm living a meaningless life, and I get frightened. I know I'm one of the luckiest dudes in America right now. I have a great house. My parents don't have to work. I've got money. I'm famous, but it could all change, man. It could go away. You never know. And he went on, and he said, I don't handle fame well. Most actors on most days don't think they're worthy. I have no idea where this insecurity comes from, but it is a God-sized hole. And if I knew it, I'd fill it, and I'd be on my way. So we try to fill this emptiness uh, by medicating it. We try to fill it through relationships. We try to fill it with more stuff. In our, in our society, just honestly speaking, many people think that the way that you satisfy this is through sex. And, and listen, I, I, hear me. Sex is a great thing. Turn to your neighbor. No, don't do that. That could get awkward. Um, but, but, but the idea, uh, sex is a great thing. Not knocking it. But, but in our culture, if you look at our culture, we have taken sex and we have elevated it from an activity to an identity. And we have placed on an act a belief that it's going to deliver something that it cannot deliver. Only God can satisfy this emptiness in our culture. It's been chronicled in our music. Does anybody recognize this band? You guys are young. Maybe, maybe some of you recognize this band. Do you guys recognize those faces? Okay, who do we got there? Anybody know? Rolling Stones. Do you know that that picture was taken in 1965? It was taken the year after I was born. They had one of their most famous songs. It was called I Can't, or Satisfaction. And um, we'll, we'll go to the next slide. This is a more recent picture of them. And uh, this year, uh, you could probably still see them touring. They toured in 2016. They haven't announced their dates for 2017. But 52 years after they wrote the song Satisfaction, these guys are still on the road singing the song Satisfaction. Mick Jagger was quoted in his late 20s and 30s saying, "If I'm, I would rather be dead than singing Satisfaction when I'm 45 years old. <laughs> but it continues. Some pretty riveting words. Let me just read you some of the words from the song. I can't get no satisfaction. I can't get no satisfaction because I try and I try and I try and I try. I can't get no. I can't get no. I can't get no. Oh, no, no, no. Hey, hey, hey. That's what I say. Okay, I'm telling you, you sing those words for 52 years, you're going to look even worse than that. that that's, that's just the truth, right? 
But this emptiness, this, this lack of being able to get satisfaction, it's chronicled in, my, in our music. Uh, my more vintage music, that was a little before me, but I grew up to U2 and Bono, and, and what was their favorite song? Still haven't found what, I, what I'm looking for, right off the Joshua Tree album. And I don't know all of the contemporary music today, but I would just say, in general, country music, like they're not getting it yet, right? Would you agree? And uh, I don't think Lady Gaga's got it all figured out today. This emptiness, this, this looking for other things to fill this emptiness that's chronicled in our music. Look at verse 3. In contrast, it says, Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Jesus will come and he will say this in John 6, 35. He will say, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. In John 7, verse 37, he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So we've seen the, the call and the contrast. I want you to look at, at verse 3. Incline your ear and come to me and hear that your soul may live. I want you to hear God's heart for you this morning. There's three really important words there. They're the words, come to me. And, and, and to, to experience the satisfying deep in our soul, it's going to require movement on our part. Like the offer is there, but there needs to be a response. The, the call is to response. There is a, a choice that needs to be made, a change that is demanded. What does this look like? Let me, let me just look at what it says next. And I will make with you, this is an incredible promise, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commanders for the peoples. And so all of a sudden, in the middle of this invitation, all of a sudden, David is thrown into this. And I remember the first time I was studying, I'm like, well, so what's up with David? Like, why is he bringing David up at this point? But I want you to consider who David was. And if you know the story of David, David was one of the sons of a man by the name of Jesse. And to the prophet Samuel, he had been instructed to go to Jesse's house and that one of his sons would, be become, would become king. Do you guys remember the story? So Samuel shows up, says, Jesse, gather your sons. Jesse gathers all of his sons, lines them up, and he's like, I, I, I'm Samuel's like, I'm confused. Like, one of your sons is supposed to be the king, but I just went through the line, and the Lord hasn't given me indication that any of these men are going to be king, so, so we've got a problem. Why do you think that is, Jesse? And he's like, well, I did forget one of my sons. Just think about that for a moment. <laughs> so, so like, you're David, and he's like, well, there's a, I got the one, but he's, he's, he's out with the sheep. Like, he's that guy. And so they called David forward, and I would just say that the promises and the covenant that God made with David was not dependent on who David was. And if you look at the story of David, he is described as a man after God's own heart. But there are serious failings along the way with David. But God's choice of David is a covenant, it's not a contract, and you need to understand the difference. Because we're really glad that our God is a covenant God, not a contract God. See, if he were a contract God, what that would mean is that there would have to be, I'm thinking back to my old business law days in college, what they call consideration on both sides. Like if, if I'm going to buy a house, and I come to the closing table, um, I have to bring consideration, and the consideration I bring is, is money. And the person selling the house to me is bringing consideration. That's the title to the property. A contract involves consideration on both parts, but a covenant is only dependent on the one who's making the promise. And what God is saying here is, he's saying, listen, I am offering to satisfy, and I am pointing to David. David was not 
in a contract relationship with me. He was in a covenant relationship with me. And the things that you saw that happened in David's life were not dependent on him. It was dependent on me because I'm the one who promised. Do you get it? And it goes on in the passage. And it's interesting, and it says, Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that you did not know shall run to you, because the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. And, and, and theologians and scholars who have studied these few verses would indicate that during this passage, he begins with David, but he slides into a, a kind of Messiah or Messianic language. And he's talking first about David, but then he's talking about the promise of a Messiah. And I don't want to break that down for you beyond this. What's promised to David and what God promised to set his unconditional love on us like he did David, it's available to us just like it was to David because God never changes. He's a God who is a covenant God. It's interesting, Joel Stoll said it this way. He said, regardless of who we are or what we have or do not have, the ultimate issue in life is where do I look for satisfaction and where can I be assured of sufficient resources to sustain and secure me regardless? He's talking about his steadfast, sure love for David. The word that is used in the Old Testament is loving kindness. He sets his chasid love, that's the Hebrew word, onto David. And, and I just, I have to stop here for a minute. Um, I was a follower of Jesus Christ for a long time before I understood the unconditional love of Jesus Christ. I understood justification, that Jesus died for my sins, paid the penalty on the cross so that when I confess my sins, though I am guilty of sin because of he paid the penalty in my place, he absorbed the wrath of God that now I stand before a judge, though guilty, I am declared innocent because he's paid the price. That's justification. And when I um, carry around my guilt and I come to the cross, I can leave my guilt at the foot of the cross because of the justification, that work that is accomplished by the cross. He paid the penalty for my sin. I get that. But what I didn't understand was the unconditional love of Jesus Christ that also lets me leave my shame at the foot of the cross. See, see God is not in love with some future version of you. He is not looking at you as you stumble in here this morning and saying, boy, I love that person because I can look into the future and he's going to turn out okay even though he's just kind of a putz today. That's not what it means to be unconditionally loved by the Lord. What he's saying is, I love him right now. And my desire is that I can have a covenant relationship with him right now and his desire is it's shown in the text oh come to the waters understand that there's an unconditional love that I have for my followers and I got to tell you something that doesn't just deal with your guilt it deals with your shame because no matter what is in your past no matter what your last week was like no matter how beat up you are when you stumble in here you don't have to run from a holy God you can run to him because you know that he unconditionally loves you see that's the the covenant in this passage, look at verse 6. Here's the condition. I know you're like, oh, I thought there wasn't a condition. I thought there wasn't a condition. This is the catch. Um, look at what it says, verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Please hear me. The condition in these verses is not on God's love, it's on your enjoyment of his love. See, see, faith 
there's that call, come to me, faith has feet. You do not experience the covenantial love of God by hearing about it. It takes movement. It requires movement on your part. It says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. It's not a condition, a condition on God's covenant. It's a condition on our enjoyment of it. Around harvest, some of you may know this. Um, have you guys heard the faith definition that we use at harvest? Is that something that you've given to your people, Steve? We talk about faith because people are like, well, Faith is kind of this out there, like, well, what does that mean? And it seems kind of fuzzy. It's really not. Faith is believing the word of God and acting upon it, no matter how I feel, because God promises a good result. Faith is believing the word of God and acting upon it, no matter how I feel. Demands a choice. It requires some effort on our part. It says in the passage, while he may be found, while he is near, and I would just say this, when I see those words in this passage, I'm reminded, we don't know how much time we have. Uh, life, life is quick. And it's not just like, oh, something might happen to you this week. I'm not putting that on you, okay? But what I'm saying is, when you hear the call of the gospel to give your life to something that can ultimately satisfy, not just knowing the facts, but saying, hey, I, all my chips are in the middle of the table. I am all in on who Jesus is, and, and, and I'm going to follow him the way, well, a way that is worthy for what he did in our place. When you push all of your chips to the middle of the table, um, that, that's a call, that's a response. I think, I think sadly, sometimes we, we approach the gospel like I approach a pool with cold water. Any of you guys like, like I hate cold water. Anybody like me? Don't, don't leave me hanging. So, so you get me to a pool, everybody's in the pool, they're jumping in off the diving board, and I'm like going in step by step. I'm one of those guys, you know what I mean? And I don't think the gospel is, you're not going to enjoy the refreshment of coming to the water that this passage um, talks about by sticking your toe into the water. The requirement is, will you jump all the way in? It requires a response on our part. My concern would be that in hearing the gospel and refusing to push all of your chips, your entire life into the middle of the table and saying, I do believe that it's Jesus who can ultimately satisfy. You, you say no to that enough times. The Bible talks about a wounded heart. It talks about a calloused heart. Hebrews talks about this idea, don't harden your hearts in response to the gospel. And I love those words at the end of uh, verse 7, for he will abundantly pardon. Ephesians 3 says, To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all, all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask and think. So we've had the, the call, the contrast, the covenant, the condition. Here's the last part. Let me close with this. And this part I just called God's heart. Now, now listen, I grew up Baptist. Okay, I got a gear. I could have came up with another C here, okay? I could have called this the conclusion, the culmination. Like, I, I've got that gear, all right? Um, but I want you to hear God's heart for you in the rest of this passage. Look at verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. These are verses that you might be familiar with. Sometimes people grab these and they take them out of context and when we don't understand something going on in life, we're like, well, God's ways are higher, his thoughts are higher. We just don't get it. 
understand in the context of this passage when it's talking about his ways being higher than our ways and his thoughts greater than our thoughts it's not a random thing it's talking in relation to his abundantly pardoning us when we move towards him that's the context of how these verses are presented in the text and it goes on and says in verse 10 it says for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word that goes, forth, uh, that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Again, the promise that when God's word is proclaimed, it accomplishes something. That's a wonderful promise. But in the context of this passage, it's talking about something very specifically. God is saying he will abundantly, heart, or, or, uh, abundantly pardon, and he's saying that eternal longing in your soul, you can bank on the fact that when you seek the Lord, when you call on his name, when you surrender your life, not just acknowledge with your heart what, who God is and what he's done, but you said, I'm all in on this thing, not only will he abundantly pardon, but he will satisfy that eternal longing in your soul. The big idea this morning, do you have the big idea in your notes? Okay, yeah, we always have a big idea in our notes, and, and the amount of times that I forget to give you the big idea is astonishing to me. That should come at the beginning of the message. Can I give it to you now? God's calling us out of the emptiness. God's calling us out of the emptiness. Enough of the settling, enough of being thirsty. God's heart is he wants so much more for you. There's a poem that was written by a gentleman by the name of Wilbur Reese. Let me just read it to you. It said, I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want about a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. See, to me, that's sad. Going through the motions of religion, going through the process of looking like a follower of Jesus Christ, but never pursuing him with your whole heart passage goes on verse 12 for you shall go forth in joy like like i like that see, see, see joy is so much better than happiness because it sustains you through all the different storms and calms of life for you shall go forth in joy and be led forth in peace the mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands instead of the thorns shall come up the cypress instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle and it shall be and it shall make a name for the lord an everlasting sign it shall not be cut off. So this morning, this entire passage is an invitation, right? And it's not necessarily a call to the, the person who doesn't know Jesus Christ. It's actually an invitation to the follower of Jesus Christ who, like Israel, have, have let, let other idols creep into their hearts. They've moved away from the Lord and the prophet Isaiah is desperate, calling out, oh, come back to the waters, because only God can satisfy. The response this morning is clear. I, I can't tell your hearts. But the Lord sees, and the Lord knows, and the Lord has made some promises, and his desire is to satisfy the eternal longing of your soul. So here's the question. What's at the top of your mountain? 
What's the thing that you're chasing and pursuing that you believe will make you happy? I'd encourage you, make that Jesus Christ because only he can satisfy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. And uh, as we look around our uh, communities and uh, as we wander through malls and, and, and just uh, encounter the people that we encounter on a day-by-day, day, our hearts are burdened because there's people that are uh, lonely and um, they're hurting and they bought a lie and they need relief and their, tholes are, and their souls are thirsty. And you've given us your son and he satisfies that thirst. Father, teach us to have greater faith. Teach us to believe that. Don't let us get sidetracked. Don't let us chase things that cannot satisfy. Only you. Only you can save. You are creator. You are sustainer. You are Lord. You are king of kings. Your name is above every name and it's only at the name of Jesus that we can be saved. And beyond that, it's only at the name of Jesus we can be satisfied. We trust you, Lord. Your promises and your word are true. We thank you for the invitation. It's in your great name we pray. Amen.